This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neo Modern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Ruben. How you doing? Doing well. It's uh, warm. It's warm. Well, maybe warm today. You're, you're, you're wearing leather. I th- would strongly advise you not to be wearing leather. What is that? Okay, so, you, so you're bringing, bringing it up. Um, I'm wearing hell? a leather. I'm wearing a, wearing a leather dress. It is oxblood. It's a great color, but it is real hot. And uh, it wasn't that hot when I put it on this morning when I made my fashion choice. And now mm. I'm committed to it all day long you're not committed and i'm quite warm at this point but i've committed so uh, i'm sticking I, with it i'm sorry i made you turn off your fan i feel kind of bad about i did that, you know? i did i had to turn it off because it was making a whomp 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 noise in the back of this podcast so yes okay i am well, i'm professional I'm, of you now i am I'm, I'm just you know really struggling silently for the for the people okay good um, let me see. How are I you? Want, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I I uh, posted a selfie on Instagram. It's my first, I think it's one of my first selfies. <laughs> you said that, like you've never said the word selfie before. It's so kind it of a, doesn't I, surprise me. It's your first selfie. I don't know. I just don't feel like a selfie kind of guy, but uh, I tried it. Oh, honestly, I walked into the bathroom and the light was really nice. I thought, well, so I got to take a picture of something in here. And I was like, oh, yeah. So, so it's your gateway it, selfie. We'll see what happens next. That, yeah, I just also wanted to say that I went to um, an open show last night. What's uh, an you, open you, show? What's an open show? It is this organization that is international, but they're uh, sort of community photographer groups. And they get together and they have someone presents some photos and talks about their work. And uh, it's like a, a local thing. And I did it in San Francisco. It's been going on for a decade. Wait, maybe. you went in real life? Or no was it like a virtual? Go in real life. I went oh. in virtually, but that, but it was <laughs> the but it was the Santa Cruz open wow. show, and it was fun. It was really cool. nice. So I think uh, uh, a plug to wherever city you're in, see if there's an open show in your town and uh, oh, join that's it. great. It's, it's kind of cool. Uh, I'm I'm a new fan of uh, Santa Cruz's open show. So uh, did you meet any photographers there that you we might have on a future episode? Yes, I think we can mine the hell out of these things. And <laughs> to boot, I had friends. <laughs> uh, a, a couple people who were there were people who've had already had on our show. You know, oh, great. Uh, Angelica well, that's was there, Shmuel was there, and it, it, like I it, it was like, oh, is this what you guys do? You guys hang out here. Anyway, it was very fun. Um, and my daughter's back from college, and so we're in that sort of new, new world order here. But uh, yes, we have a great show today. I'm kind of excited uh, to introduce you to Michael Shapiro, who's here with us. Um, Michael is. Well, gosh, he's like not only a super um, old family friend. Uh, I don't know, Michael. You feel like we're sort of brothers, right? <laughs> Hi, Michael. Your mother always called me the other Michael. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that should drive that point home. Oh uh, yes, yeah, no. Um, we, I mean, I wouldn't say we grew up. You, you've been uh, working with you'd been working with my father for decade decades since the eighties. 1984. 1984. So, so much of both the collection and um, what he understands about photography has come from you. You're a, an expert um, in all kinds of aspects of, of 
collecting and, and gallery works and stuff like that. You used to have a gallery in San Francisco and you sort of finally pulled out of San Francisco and, and where are you now? I'm in Connecticut, Fairfield County, Connecticut. Is that an better? From you, like, City. you like that? Uh, I want to come home to Northern <laughs> California, please. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's tougher here. How so? Um, I, I don't know. I, I just, uh, you don't hug your grocer here. <laughs> it kind of says it all. It, it's, uh, that's what, and that's what I miss the most, strangely. Hugging you know? the grocer? Hugging grocers. Hmm. Hugging my right. grocer. And, uh, you know, I just went grocery shopping. I feel like I missed the whole thing. There's, anyway. not, a lot of, there's not a lot of have a nice day around here. I miss uh, that very much. Well, it is it is beautiful in California today, although a little hot. I think we've established <laughs> we've established that. Um, but I wanted to have you on the show because I don't know. I I talk with you all the time, but we don't. I feel like people. I always learn so much talking to you, and I thought you. Know, I, I would love to share the knowledge, to Suzanne. You know, you, yeah. You just know everything about classical no, photography. Oh, I don't. I know. Uh, I I don't. There's so much to know. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, the sad thing is when you have to make a living, you can't sit in the library all day or you can't read all day. There's so much to know. How did you... Is that is that your favorite day, though? I mean, if you could just sit in the library and, and uh, read about photography all day, would that be your, your perfect I'm very, day? I'm very close to Yale. I'm uh, 40 minutes from Yale, and they are very gracious and inviting to anyone who can read. <laughs> to those that are literate. I have sat all day. I have sat all day beating my way through their man, their miles of Man Ray books and Edward Weston wow. books and uh, just doing research. You know, I like to, I don't know. It was never like just a commodity to me. It was uh, a very social thing, learning about where the photographers were at that moment when it, they research, created. I don't they, I don't know if people think of collectors or gallerists as people doing research. What, what, the thing that you and I were talking about earlier, this Man Ray thing, what was that? That looks like classic research. Can you describe what – is that typical uh, I, of – Yes, I, I can. I, I mean, I just want to say I come out of the museum world. So, you know, I was paid to do research and I loved it. I, I love it. I mean, I wish I could just do it. I wish, you know, I didn't have to uh, – you know, I wish it kind of wasn't about making money, but, you know, it's expensive. Yeah. It's expensive to live, you know. So, okay. Um, <clears throat> the Man Ray thing that I just sent you was uh, I had the opportunity to compare uh, two great Man Rays, one that I had just bought and one that's in a famous collection. I guess I can say where it is because... It hung in Elton John's show at the Tate uh, Gallery about three years wow. ago. Everybody knew it was Elton's. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I made a point of comparing these pictures in, on many different levels because they were both photographs of the neck, the neck of uh, the great American model and photographer and lover of Man Ray, Lee Miller. Oh. 
Did you know that they were both the same? They, they were both of her when you first started looking at them? Yeah, yeah, because I knew uh, before Elton bought that, uh, the, 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 you know, the one he has of Lee Miller's neck. Uh, I actually had possession of it. I, I, uh, I knew uh, the collector it came from and he had asked me to offer it. And I offered it to somebody who uh, in fact was a painting collector and wanted to hang a collection of Man Rays on his yacht, the one that happened to be in the south of France. But that would be a kind of a cool idea. And I knew where there was a great collection of Man Ray. And this picture of Man Ray's girlfriend's neck was the most important picture in that collection. And I happened to find another a photograph of a variant of Lee Miller's neck in another position. I happened to find published uh, both negatives and I concluded that they were made on the same day, the same sitting, I oh, should wow. say. How did you go about discovering that? Like if the negatives I, weren't uh, in the same contact sheet, you know, how would you, how do you know? It, well, I, there, there, I didn't, get that far. I just happened to be, uh, I mean, these were probably obscure books, but I, I somehow, I can't remember exactly, but somehow I, I located both negatives and the negatives were so extraordinary because there's a kind of softness to the pictures and they have to do with the fact that the negative uh, is huge compared to the image, the images of Lee Miller's neck in the middle. So he didn't, oh. he, I, he, how do you say this? He, the image was in the middle of the negative, so small, but it was such a conscious modernist effort because um, it was so small and he had pulled back so far that there was a softness, like a sort of out of focus in a way. Oh, wow. I mean, he cropped it. He enlarged, cropped and enlarged a p tiny it part was, of it. And then he cropped the living daylights out of it. Huh. And be, because he wasn't cropping things that were filling the negative, he was cropping things that were like an almost infinitesimal part of the negative. And it, it was extraordinary because I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I could actually follow his thinking. I mean, this was such a, an avant-garde thing to do. 1929, right? Nine. I mean, you know, not that early. I mean, Man Ray had been in Paris for seven years already. But, you know, think of who he was looking at. I mean, think of Picasso and Cubism and... Yeah, Did you have I mean, any idea, like before? I mean, you'd obviously seen the the printed work, like the the printed photographs, and so you had only when you discovered these negatives. Did you realize how the actual photograph was created? Well, yeah, happened? I mean that's part of it. Okay, so the the, the whole story has to do with. Um, Let's go the whole story. Yeah, whole story. I bought, well, no, I mean, the beginning <laughs> of the story is that I happened to be in Paris and I bought this extraordinary Man Ray for, uh, from uh, a dealer who was showing a Paris photo. So I bought, I, I bought this picture 
for an extraordinary amount of money within five minutes of seeing it. And then I knew I knew it had to be connected to Elton's because I had possession of that picture. I knew about that picture. When I bought this, as soon as I could, I took it down to Atlanta and uh, Elton allowed me to view it outside of the frame. So his framer took it out and I had this opportunity to compare it. It was a, a very generous thing to do. These things are rare, valuable, and fragile. I mean, they are, you know, I mean, there was a trust thing going on, which I was so appreciative that as a thank you, I wrote this, you know, it's not an essay, it's an opinion piece uh, comparing these two because they will never be together. I mean, they will, the, the idea that these 19, late 20s prints came together and by, you know, were brought together by me, somebody who is just so fascinated about print quality. And uh, that's the big thing that came out of this. Um, uh, I was able to determine that these prints were made for completely different reasons. And what? if you ask the, the great conservators like Paul Messier, or you ask, you know, great historians, there are really two reasons to make a photograph. Right. One is for public consumption to be published. Elton's was made to be published. It was on paper that a publication could best duplicate the picture with on that kind of paper stock, which was sort of semi-glossy. The one that I bought is the other reason to make a photograph, which is for personal reasons. This was a finished, mounted, signed. Elton's isn't signed. Elton's was made for publication, effectively. Man Ray was trying to, you know, introduce himself to as much of the public. I mean, you know, the way you made a living then in Paris of the 20s is you got your name around and you know, you, if you were lucky enough to have your stuff published, there was a fee involved that you could get, or you, you could get jobs perhaps from this recognition you were getting in, in the press. I have a ton of questions come to mind. Um, first of all, print paper printing. Um, one of the things that always uh, amazed me about what you do is um, sometimes I would see a picture or my dad would see a picture and we like the photo, like um, Jerome, Arizona. Okay, some am amazing, beautiful picture. Aaron Siskind. Aaron Siskind. And then um, I'd see it somewhere and you'd be like, mm, that's not a particularly good version of that. I was like, what do you mean? Like, that's that's the print. That's what it looks like. You're like, no, 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 no. And you started to describe, like, well, when he first printed, he did this, and then he used that paper stock 20 years later, and he, and he tried some big one. And you seem to be aware of every version that the artist ever made of something. And so when you see one, it's not like that's the print. It's like, oh, that's that print. Well, Is that's that right? all the photographers that I have embraced. I mean, you know, there's a million photographers out there. I mean, Siskin is somebody that I, you know, 
you know, intimately involved with my whole career since I started collecting in the early 70s. Siskin was somebody I knew. And then out of nowhere, I just happened to give Siskin his last show at one of my galleries in San Francisco. And then he went back to Providence and died. I mean, like, so I had this like opportunity. And then people said, don't ever do a show at Michael's gallery because (laughs) it may be over, you know, for you. But um, Siskin, you know, this Jerome, Arizona negative, the one you cite here, I have sold probably five of those in my career. And the difference between the ones that he made early on, what's the negative date? Is it 50? I'm not looking at it. I'm not looking I at forgot. it. I forgot. I should know. I but just it, it, glo- it glowed. It literally glowed. And you and I looked at a different one at APAD once, and it just was kind of flat. It was hard. To, it's well, hard to describe the difference between these two identical well, prints it, by the same photographer, but they were very different. And it was the, the paper. papers change. The papers change. I mean, that's about denuding the, the, the companies, paper stock companies, denuding silver from the paper. The later ones that when he revisited that negative, like so many old great photographers, when the a market, a proper market beca- began to be established in the early 70s, this was these starving photographers just started making prints and then dealers started to come out of the woodwork and multiply and suddenly these these photo- great photographers who were just kind of forgotten about were making a living, you know? I mean, it was great. But the papers available in the 70s and 80s for Siskin were not the papers that were available to him in the 40s and 50s, wow. even 60s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with you know, short of making your own paper stock in the 70s, which nobody would do. There were so many choices. Um, you know, you got what was was available to you. Mm-hmm. Did it look like the picture that you made 30 years before? No, it didn't. It was impossible. And most people are, are not comparing them. You look at a picture, it is as good as it is. But when you don't get uh, two Moonrise Hernandez or, or a bunch of, of, of Jerome Arizonas and you compare them and get the best one, no one does that. You just see that someone has one and you like it or you don't. Right. Well, I do. You, it. you know, I you do know. it. Your, your father and I did it. Really? You know, the, the, you know, your. I, I always say that um, your father taught me how to be a dealer. You know, oh. your dad was an academic, and I was also. Uh, you know, in art, in the field of art history. I mean, your father was like one of the most famous ophthalmologists on earth. <laughs> you know. The, the man, somebody once characterized your father, uh, another ophthalmologist, as the man who invented the retina. <laughs> uh, and your father was, you know, did your father, your father had two chairs at the University of Florida, right? Just not one. He had two chairs. A couple, mean, he more, he, a couple more, he'd have a dining room set. You exactly. Know? <laughs> yeah. but, you know, the extraordinary thing about my career and your father is that, you know, your father your father chose to work with me. Your father bought 2,700 pictures for me, just something like that. Wow. And over a 20-year period, something like that. It's something absurd. And and, and, and um, you, at, for a while, not only represented 
Siskind and and all these other classic Tice and all these other people, but you had contemporary photographers, young photographers who you started bringing up. Why did you stop doing that? You did stop, right? I I did stop. I stopped about 15 or 20 years ago uh, doing living photographers. (laughs) I, um, I, I love between the wars. I mean, that is my great love. I mean, that's the most extraordinary pivot and, uh, not only 20th century, but all of photography. I mean, the, the break from pictorialism to modernism, the break from sentimental to geometric. And I mean, it follows the Cubist history, history of Cubism. I mean, and people like Man Ray were watching Picasso, you know, split the cube, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, the history is just uncannily, wonderful and so what happened after the war i mean what happened what changed for you if that if your sweet spot is between them what sort of fell off for the the later period well ah, um the contemporary world changed uh you know my my interest in uh, vintage early 20th century photography and my eye for contemporary photography were identical I mean, I was interested in a classic eye. I wasn't interested. I, I wasn't, I never, I hardly ever sold any color photography in my career. And mm-hmm. I've sold like a shitload of photographs. Are you left <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, you can say that. Okay, so uh, this, this isn't going to elementary schools, really. <laughs> oh, I, I, I hope not. We're actually going to be in the uh, Cooper's uh, third grade class tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize, though. <laughs> but I, my my uh, my eye has always been, uh, you know, when when Mike Wallace asked Cartier-Bresson, "What is it? Like, what's the one thing that your photographs and the whole era uh, are built on?" Cartier-Bresson said one word: geometry. Like, I have always been interested in the way photographers portray geometry. You mean that literally, and like uh, geometric literally. forms or just the balance of objects? I mean, how, how literal do I take you at geometry? I mean, it's a variable and loose characterization, but, you know, go through a Cartier-Bresson book and tell me you don't get a sense of geometry, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, talking, I'm not only talking about uh, the 30s, 32, when, you know, he sort of started, uh, you know, coming out. Um, you know, look his whole career, you know, I mean, modernism is based on geometry. Is there a, f- a picture that comes to mind immediately when you think of Cartier-Bresson and geometry that you're just like, this distills it for me? Well, my, you know, my favorite Cartier-Bresson has always been a, a picture that's more socially conscious. Uh, uh, he, you know, he, he did a book on New York and he did some pictures of Harlem and there's a picture called Easter Sunday of a, you know, just very beautiful African-American woman. I mean, think about white people going into Harlem in the, like Siskin did in the thirties. I mean, it was extraordinary, you know, Cartier-Bresson too, you know, like an ardent freedom fighting person, you know, with his lens and with his mouth too, Cartier-Bresson. Wasn't you know, he at the Martin Luther King? Wasn't he on, on the stage? I, I, great picture of Martin yeah. Luther King. Yeah. He's got a picture of Malcolm X as well. And, you know, the, 
so, I mean, as, as far as a, a picture that by Cartier-Bresson that um, evokes the error of modernism, I mean, it would be really hard to beat a picture, um, the picture of Hier, France, which is the bicyclist. Um, and it's pretty famous. I, I wish I could hold the book up and show you, but I know. The, I, I mean, know that, the that's an extraordinarily inventive. I mean, just, you know, I have oh, no yeah. problem using the word revolutionary. I you know, it. as far as somebody's vision and, um, you know, if you put it in the context of these guys who are trying to change your, the spectator's idea of photography, that photography, the camera could do um, its own thing that no other medium could do, media could do. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why they, modernism was so important because before that, the, the, the photographic pictorialists were just copying impressionist painting, painters and sentimental, soft focus and dreamy. And, you know, sentimental is a real pejorative word in a lot of photographic circles. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no pretty little pictures of, you know, the sunset with your kids playing with big smiles or i don't know uh, okay. the kind of pictures i like to hang over my family so post-war post-world war ii and then as certainly as we got into the 60s and 70s photography i would say became conceptual you couldn't it wasn't about the image no, no photographer just took pictures and sold pictures they had to have a, a an idea they were exploring visually and and have a kind of a thematic work a body of work that didn't that that what didn't exist in between the wars, right? That was a new idea. Well, I, I mean, it's so funny when you said that. What came to mind was Danny Lyons. I mean, Danny Lyons is a political photographer. You know, SNCC pictures of SNCC, and uh, uh, you know, you know, there were so many. Um, there are still so many reasons to. Uh, it's all personal. You approach your subject matter out of what, what you're dealing. I mean, that's why I've always said it's the most therapeutic thing you can do is pick up a camera and go explore your your needs. Are Are you a photographer? Do you take Do you pick up a camera and explore your needs? No, I take, <laughs> I take sentimental pictures of my family and my daughter. <laughs> no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't look. Uh, I, I've often been asked, uh, you know, uh, let me see your pictures, and uh, you know, I, no, I would no, I'm not, no, I can't do that. <laughs> I would always be disappointed. I, I was in the dark room in the seventies, and you know, in the seventies, but you know, I got a feeling I had to make a picture, but no, I sucked. I was all all interested in pattern. Well, that's not a bad thing. But I was interested in patterns, just finding patterns, like kind of mm -hmm. like Margaret Burke White did in a, you know, in a far better <laughs> way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I, I know I, I, I have no talent. I have no well, talent I, whatsoever. I see why you like. I mean, if you're saying you like pattern, the ear. France picture of the Cartier-Bresson. I looked it up when you were uh, just when you were talking about it. I wasn't familiar, but it's it has like the rhythm, there's like rhythm to it. It almost looks like it's 
in motion and movement, like the kind of this curve over the back edge and the cyclist moving through. And then this, like the rhythm of the steps and the railing, it's like, I've never seen a picture that feels like it has a soundtrack or, you know, it's it's very cool. cool. That's well characterized. Wow. I never, you know, I never, I mean, I thought about in terms of looking at a photograph and thinking in terms of sound. Don't you think uh, that particular picture? I mean, it's it's frequently shown as a description of Cartier-Bresson's decisive moment, the bike caught in that moment. Um, right. But it's not discussed in terms of ge- generally, in terms of sort of his geometries. Or I mean, he had to obviously frame that, compose that before the bike was there, and then wait wait for a bike. Is that what happened? It's an uncropped you know, raw, you know, straight picture, straight photograph. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of connections you can draw to modernism and the decisive moment and all that. But, um, I mean, that that picture is published everywhere for a reason. You know, mm-hmm. that's an extraordinary modernist picture. So here's but, a question. Know, as, a, as a collector, is that a valuable picture? And what, what what does that equation look like? It's such an amazing picture. Is it a valuable picture? It's a valuable picture as a vintage picture, as a 30s print, I'll tell you that, or as a 40s print. I mean, to, to see that picture, which I saw recently at a Cartier-Bresson exhibition, I think it was last year, to see it on early paper, to see it in, you know, in a warm, and, and just looking at it with the idea that the picture I was looking at was Cartier-Bresson's first concept of it. Like it was the picture that matched as closely as it could to his mindset when he was exposing that negative. I mean, that kind of shit turns me on. I mean, I want to know what the first concept is. I want to know, you know, I, I don't... And then, you know, I mean, for... It's really judgmental, but then you just don't care about the 80s prints of it, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, they get, then the 80s prints get really thin, you know, because you're so far away and, you know. And I think I think I have an 80s print of that. It feels, um, doesn't feel warm. That particular print doesn't feel warm. Are we, am I allowed to say that I... I sent your father a Cartier-Bresson book in 1984 and he picked out the 53 that he wanted and we ordered them immediately <laughs> while he was living. <laughs> I mean, your father said, I like this dude. <laughs> he didn't actually say it that way. He, didn't actually... he wouldn't have said dude. <laughs> he didn't say dude in 1984. No, your father never said dude. No, he never in said my dude. Experience, in my daily phone calls with him for 20 years, he never said dude. Yeah, wow. but but that sounds exactly like what he would do. Like, I like that guy. Let's get a whole ton of them. <laughs> Were you ever surprised <laughs> by anything Ruben's father like wanted or liked, or maybe even another client that you're just that you're kind of like taken off guard? Yeah, I mean, I I have uh, I have boundaries. I have very definite. <laughs> do you mean like standards, week. or do you mean like what do you mean boundaries? Uh, oh, I have a perfect example that is fresh in my mind. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, somebody I've known a long time uh, sent me a picture of a, a woman in bondage 
and said, please get this and get this picture as large as you can. And I said, there's no way I will ever buy that picture. I have, I have political boundaries. Okay. I am a freedom person. And there, yeah, there's a, I, I said to somebody, I mean, I couldn't have done this early in my career when I needed the money, but I, I said to somebody a few years ago, um, who had the most extraordinary Park Avenue apartment I've ever seen, just to tell you what these people come from and what an idiot I was. And I said, I don't think we're a good match and I don't think we should work together. And it was, mm. I, I, we, you know, there's, I, I, I'll end, I must admit that the, their whole thrust was contemporary photography, huge, uh, popular bought for attention pictures that were so decorative which isn't which is a pejorative for me <laughs> and um you know just um for the effect there was no academic approach to any degree and i said and he's and i said no this isn't going to work we're, we're not, I, i'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm not going to, I'm not the best one mm-hmm. for the job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he thanked me and thought it was really honest and kind of kicked me out of the house. <laughs> the apartment. I, but I think you have these opportunities in life and they don't come by very often when you get to prove your integrity to yourself. And mm-hmm. so I think that's one of those almost like watershed moments where you're able to say, yes, that I'm going to be true. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be like, you know, I know authentic is such a buzzword now, but I think but it's, a, it's the word. If I can't be authentic, yeah, uh, I would have been faking it to form this guy's collection. And you're happier be, you know, because of it. And you've made yeah. me happier just hearing this story. Like it's, it, it's inspiring. It's funny that you're talking about the academic interest in this, because a lot of people would say, what about the aesthetic interest? Like I just, my, my father would always say he didn't, he was not an investing in photographs. He was just getting pictures he liked. That was the only criterion. Well, my job really, your dad fell in love with images and I fall in love with prints before print quality before I probably even take in the fullness of the image. I am looking at the print. If I don't like the print, I'm sort of out. I mean, right. Carson, it was like you had no choice. You know, he printed on this paper. It was the 80s. You know, that's just the way it was. And the images were just so extraordinary. I mean, it was mainstream photographic history. I mean, your father wanted to drop that into the collection. Hmm. I remember the Robert Frank uh, City of London, which I think my whole family would say is our favorite print. But it was the paper. Uh, It looked so different when you saw this image and then you saw the particular print that we had. It was just, it, it wasn't the image. It was something what about was this object. Paper? What, what was it? What, what, kind of what was that? <laughs> Michael, you tell him. <laughs> it was the only time I've ever seen Robert Frank used to t- use a toned paper. And the picture, I could talk for a long time about that picture, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's downstairs again. Is it? In my living room, yeah. Um, that has had many, many, many owners. Um, so uh, that is a picture 
of London in a pea soup fog, smog, as they called it in London. You know, they called it a pea soup sky. And I think it was very experimental and a total one-off for Robert Frank to choose a cream color Aquapatriga paper from the 50s, a very short-lived paper that Patriga made for, uh, for people who might not want to only print, be, you know, uh, be isolated to just white paper stocks. Mm-hmm. So they made this and it didn't work. And George Tice told me that Aquafo was hand, was trying to get rid of these papers and get, gave boxes of it to his photo club in New Jersey in, the, in around 1959, 58 or 60, around there, late 50s. Uh, Tice helped me with that research. But um, that picture is extraordinary. It's it's a picture of a banker with a top hat and it's perhaps Cartier-Bresson's, you know, one of, one of two of his greatest London pictures, the other being the hearse. You know, right. he went to London in 1951. Um, but I want to say something else about, uh, you know, it's more than parenthetical. Um, Where the banker is sort of on the on the left of the image walking toward the camera, you see silhouettes walking away. You're looking yeah. down the long street with the two buildings, sort yeah. of perspe- one-point perspective. Yeah, exactly. That's the picture. It's coming out of an alleyway with a top hat. I mean, yeah. you know, which is all about class, of course, right? right. What hat you wore. But I want to just say this about your uh, uh, that picture. I bought that picture for myself and my wife and I, my wife at the time, and I had it hanging in our living room. And I was very, you know, it was without a doubt the most important picture that I ever bought and would ever have. And your father came, I think your parents came to dinner or your father came to the apartment in San Francisco and he just pointed at it and said, I want that. <laughs> That's horrible. And I, had no, I, had, I had no interest at all in ever selling that picture. And, um, you know, I would never say no to Mel. I mean, Mel was like my... You know, Mel is, you know, extraordinary. To I don't me. know. That, that sounds horrible. Dad. That's like, like, I love your boots. Give me your boots. <laughs> <laughs> no, he could have had my boot. He could have had my whole outfit. You should have seen. <laughs> he pointed to a Robert Frank vintage oversized print. The only time Robert Frank ever used this paper that I can find. And I've owned hundreds of Robert Franks. I've never, I've been in Robert Frank shows and, collections and i mean and i've been to the national gallery that has the i've never seen him use this paper and it, it works it yeah. actually works on that paper it's a magnificent picture it is it's it's pretty amazing you also have or we had for a while but i think i sent it to you like that letter you had written him asking him about the paper and he basically cussed you out <laughs> you wrote robert another- frank it was another perfect moment. When I got it, I wrote Robert Frank immediately. Wow. I wrote Robert Frank, Mabu, Canada. I didn't have an address. I didn't have anything. And the letter got to him. I said, I just acquired this picture. Um, it has a Harry Lund stamp on the back. So Harry Lund was a dealer in Washington who, um, who 
as I understand it, bought a large quantity of Robert Frank pictures from Robert Frank when he needed some money. And uh, Harry Lunn decided to make a, a, a Robert Frank stamp of his own and stamp the back of all these pictures and, you know, put various notes or, you know, numerals to, you know, sort of, sort of uh, you know, organize them in his inventory or something. And so I wrote, and they were not friends. One, <laughs> Frank, okay? I don't, I talked to Lund's son recently about it and he lives in Paris. I, I spoke to his son and I tried to get a real feeling about how, how what much happened? they hated each other and he wouldn't really, he was very discreet. Hmm. But um, I wrote Robert Frank when I got that picture and I said, um, here's the story and uh, it's on a, a, a different color paper and I'd love you to comment about this paper. Uh, furthermore, it has Harry Lund stamps on the back, so we have some sort of provenance here. And I bought it privately, and um, you know, I, I, I wrote him this letter. It was very gracious, and I was, you know, humbled to even be writing to him. And I was even more humbled when I got a letter back from Robert Frank. And then I opened it, and he said, "I have no comment to make uh, about." Uh, my use of this paper, but Harry Lund has no goddamn right putting his goddamn stamp on anything <laughs> I, I ever made representing it as I made it sincerely yours, Robert Frank. Right. That's a great letter. That's a great letter. <laughs> Seriously. Do you have that framed next to the picture now that it's back on your wall? That, that letter will always go. Uh, it's with the bridge. Yeah. I, want that letter. I want that letter but um <laughs> i want that letter as much as i want the print <laughs> absolutely yeah, such a funny that, story it will always it is united downstairs right now with that print i have a question uh, just uh, for um the like when someone puts a stamp or a note or anything like that does it negatively or positively sort of affect the the value of um, of a piece? I suppose it depends on who it is, but it makes me think of like the what is it the provenance of you know? Well, it's more print. than that. It's actually the the, the stamps are an identification uh, tool that photographers. I mean, Cartier Bresson used a, a chop, not a chop, but a um, what is a chop? A, it was a blind stamp. It yeah. was like a pressed on but it had no color and if you oh. look uh, to the left of the signature for this 70s 80s prints 90s prints uh there's this chop that says Henri Cartier Bresson three lines it's square right and, you know, that's Imogen Cunningham Imogen Cunningham also had a chop like that well you know that was uh those are those that was posthumous really you know, yeah, that was posthumous. I mean, that's something the family made, and the family authorized the Oakland. Uh, the, no, the the uh, uh, Image and Cunningham Estate uh, were making posthumous. Uh, there didn't have to be any authorization. It was her family who were making these posthumous prints. Oh, but um, so it, uh, Robert Frank's. You know, it's not. He's not off base at all. These stamps are almost invariably made by the photographers. I see. You know, they have their own stamp. I mean, there's a whole book on Man Ray stamps. Stephen Manford wrote about the stamps at different times. 
Uh, there's a book on Andre Cortez um, called Of New York and Paris, I think that's the title, where Sandy Phillips, the great curator of photographs, now retired from San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, she finally put the stamps together and gave them dates. And the, and it's funny, I mean, just uh, as a side, when I used to go up to Cortez uh, apartment at Two Fifth Avenue and buy prints, um, sometimes some from the photographer stamped and so you would buy would, it from him. Yeah, yeah, from him. Yeah, you could Whoa. go up there and buy from him. You know, after his wife died in '76, I went up in '77 and bought 160 of them with my aunt. Wow! So I'm almost positive had an affair with him. <laughs> <laughs> no way. My aunt was hot. She was a, <laughs> a, a modeled, you know, like a bikini for Life magazine, a full page. I mean, my aunt was, and he <laughs> noticed it after his wife died. But Cartier Bresson used, I mean, Cortez used to go into the drawer and just pull out any stamp. So the stamp didn't often match, you know, the date. So it's very confusing. But what I, so the point I'm making is that. Uh, from Robert Frank's traditional point of view, um, he believed that a stamp that was that was like a, a signature put on the, applied to the back of one of his pictures implied that he did it. Yeah, Harry right. Lund made these stamps, these Robert Frank stamps that had nothing to do. You know, it wasn't even asked, yeah. and pissed them off. I get it. I get yeah. it. Yeah. What a funny time. I mean, uh, honestly, Michael, we could talk about this all day. It's like you have so many good stories. And of course, there's a I'm great- long winded. And, you know, I, this stuff excites me, you know, like this is, you know, I got old and I got tales to tell. <laughs> I, I were here to hear them. I, I want to actually hear some of the tales on what's going behind you right now, going on behind you right now. You have some images propped up. I know our audience can't see them but i'm wondering if you can just tell us why they're propped up what they're doing there I and i recognize that one there are a lot of photographs in this room <laughs> they just happen to be in cabinets and uh, behind me is a favorite alma lavinson um uh from 1932 uh you know it's about uh looking at uh an ordinary object but discovering its inherent geometry Shaped. And they're flowers? Is that what, yeah. is that those what are, they are? Those water, are lilies. Water, those are lilies. lilies in a, water lilies in a oh. yeah. And Alma Lavinson, for our, our listeners, is one of pretty much of the, the club, the group of photographers that was F64, um, which included Weston and Imogen Cunningham and... Uh, Adams. And, Rob, and Ansel Adams, yeah, and lots of, a few other people. But she's, like, they were all influencing each other and uh and her stuff was were, yeah, i love all the levels there were 11 of them who were uh, hung at uh, the de young museum in a show in 1932 the year this picture was made wow. mm -hmm. was that and, in that show no it wasn't they all had about five or six pictures and uh you know this was and we have a hand list now it's been published so we know it was in the show we know how much they cost too. Everyone's cost five dollars except Weston's were ten. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's like the questions that are now worth a million and a half dollars. They were yes. ten. But wow. that, was, that was one of the things that my dad always said that he couldn't uh, afford art, but he could afford photographs in the seventies. They were not that expensive, you know. I think Yulesman only charged him fifty dollars for a print, and Dad just got lots of them, you know, because that's we're the poor sector of uh, art collecting. Yeah, I mean, you could. It it's, means it's accessible. It means you don't have to get a Weston, a, a great print of a Weston for a million dollars. You can get, there's plenty of unbelievably great classic photography that is actually affordable, surprisingly affordable. Uh, Harry Callahan and Imogene Cunningham it might only be a thousand dollars instead of a hundred thousand dollars, right? Well, it, what it reminded me of, I, I wrote this article for this um, ophthalmic magazine, believe it or not. Hmm. And um, I wanted to illustrate that uh, that all Edward Westons are not created equal. Mm-hmm. And I did this hierarchy of from vintage to posthumous and everything in between. And there were like six or seven levels in this hierarchy, like prints made posthumously by Edward Weston's son. Uh, coal and vintage prints and from the 20s, let's say, and then the revisited negative from the 30s and then revisited in the 40s. And then, you know, there was like a, there was a whole thing about that. But, um, you know, your father and I bought things that he could afford. Mm -hmm. I mean, the rule of collecting, you buy what you love, you buy what you can afford. And you find out if you can trust your dealer, which is probably the hardest one to figure out. But well, it sounds you know, like you found father, someone you can trust, or that you guys definitely trusted each other. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a partnership. I mean, it, you know, it was the first time. You know, there, I've had maybe ten exam, ten experiences with collectors since then that well, where we worked as a team. But your father taught me how to do that. You know, how to respect the collector and not try to have any other ulterior motives. Mm -hmm. And this was at a time we were collecting when things didn't cost what they cost now. Yeah, thankfully, yes. Michael, thank you so much. I would, I mean, it's great to have you on here and hopefully you'll come back and I can convince you to talk more. Please come back. I have so many more questions. (laughs) I'm so surprised that, you know, Time went so quickly. It's because we're having fe- fun. Yeah. I was fearing. This. I was fearing this. I was already angry at you that you made me do this. And oh, I had to <laughs> This was great. Well, we're we're happy to have you back, and I'm glad you're not angry at either one of us. I, right. I'm thrilled. I'm I'm honored that <laughs> I've seen your other guests, and I don't hold a candle to them. Well, Michael, thank you for joining us. Hopefully, you'll come back. Um, Suzanne, why don't you uh, wrap us up? <laughs> sure thing. Well, first, thank you to our guest, Michael Shapiro. Wonderful to have you. I love hearing your tales. Our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco and Santa Cruz. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. We get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. So if you know someone who might get something from us, send them a link. Thank you to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music. Michael, my brother, thank you for joining us. (laughs) And for all of you hanging out, 
We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about until next time.